Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Champ Consultants is an award-winning independent firm of highly experienced, qualified accountants and tax advisors based in Caterham, providing a fully comprehensive range of accountancy and tax services. If you would like simple but creative answers to your tax problems, call Champ Consultants, your business partner, on 01883 349 300. Good morning and welcome to your business hour with myself, Chantal. And me, Matthew. And today I'm, well, we're going to be chatting to Martin. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Chantal. So Martin started his legal career as a paralegal in a large regional firm in Kent. He then qualified as a legal executive in 2006, shortly after moving to head up a small debt recovery team at another large regional firm. After successful development there, he moved to an in-house and a large construction company in 2011, helping to restructure the business. In 2013, he'd been a um, business management consultant specialising in system development and managing change. He established Professional Legal Collecting Limited in 2014 after receiving demand from ex-clients requiring his assistant and expertise. His professional legal collections is also part of a, his business called Pro Legal Group. And Pro Legal Group is a group of professional service companies offering a unique blend of practical, commercial and legal astute advice. He offers litigation, commercial property, drafting as well as compliance and debt recovery. So we're going to be chatting to Martin today about all basically how he got into this sort of thing. And he's going to be sharing some tips with us later on as well on things that maybe we can put in place to help. Maybe not wanting to, not needing to use you, shall we say. Not necessarily not wanting to, but maybe not needing to. They're two different things, aren't they? Right. So morning, Martin. Um, Let's start off with you so how did you actually start getting into this field in the first place then did you always wanted to go down the paralegal route was that something that was always planned nothing no, not at all um i literally fell into it when uh, i tried to get a job in the, in a law firm uh, doing it because i'm i'm very techy and uh tried to get a job in it and i couldn't get the job in it because i didn't have legal experience uh, industry experience and so what they said was sorry no can do the guy who introduced me said, look, I could really do with an assistant. I literally created a job for me as his assistant. And so I literally fell into it. It was, uh, didn't really know what I was doing at all when I first started. So uh, a baptism of fire. Definitely a baptism of fire. I like that one. Um, so then obviously the path's led and you've obviously kept going in the legal thing. Um, so tell us the story of how it all sort of evolved to get your professional legal collecting limited started and everything yeah so I'm, I'm a legal executive so as i said i fell into law and the firm paid for me to do like an apprenticeship so rather than going off and doing a traditional law degree and then doing a, a legal practice course and a training contract to become a solicitor i did training on the job and took exams every six months for six years um so i was going sort of that practical commercial doing while also under, underlying that with the studying um and then from there um it literally i did a lot of networking and got noticed by another local firm who wanted me to go and head up the debt recovery team so i literally very early in my career went from being sort of a trainee to being head of department of running sort of myself and two others which is uh, again another baptism of fire <laughs> so it's quite an interesting uh, quite an interesting time and that was just before the last recession so, of course, doing debt recovery just before the recession uh, was perfect timing. It was in the, it was all, all the all the stars aligned for me. So uh, I moved in two thousand and six, got my feet under the table. Two thousand and seven, if you remember, all the fun with uh, a lot of the stuff that went on then. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, no, yeah. Well, of course, just trying to think back. Of course, some of the big companies went bust. There was a run in the banks and all that lot, and literally, business just took over and 
boomed overnight. Um, I then started to expand into insolvency um, because that was an area the firm didn't do. And at heart, I love insolvency. It's um, I love the preciseness of it. It's its own little sort of world inside law. Um, and it, it's quite technical. So um, even though I'm not a theoretical lawyer, I'm a very commercial, very practical lawyer. And that's all the advice we give is very much based upon that practical experience of doing it throughout my whole career. I love the technical aspects of insolvency. So that's where my heart truly lies, if you like. So then when you decide, what made you decide, okay, I want to basically leave working for someone else effectively and start setting up on my own? So I went in-house to this construction firm um, to basically practice what I preach. So they, they They were in tough times and literally I assisted them with doing a turnaround to actually salvage the business. We shut down a number of divisions, made a lot of people redundant. Um, so I got to deal with a lot of skills around, you know, managing people. And for me, that was more difficult because, of course, I'm actually then working in the firm. I actually know the people. Whereas normally as a lawyer, you're quite detached from these people doing these mm. processes. All of a sudden, you're now making the person redundant who's been making you coffee all week. Um, it's much more personal. And I think, to be fair, that's a really interesting insight for me because I've never lost that. You know, when we're doing stuff, it is people's lives we are affecting. Um, but because I did a successful turnaround, one of the, the things when you do a turnaround is you're the last one out the door. Because if you've done a good job, they no longer need you because you set it up. We systemised the business and I'm, I'm delighted to say, you know, that business is now turned over £40 million a year. So it's doing stormingly well and uh, has some absolutely world-class systems in place. And that set me on that sort of journey of systemization, which I also love as well. So that ticky in me has never really been lost. So uh, it was natural for me to then set up my own firm just because the fact is that a lot of people were coming back to me and saying, do you still do debt recovery? And I was like, no, I work in-house. And it was like, oh, I could actually cater for these people and set up my own business. So that's what I did. So that's how I sort of effectively fell into being my own boss as well, I suppose. So when you obviously, you've had a whole career in like working for somebody else and that career of corporate sort of working in big organisations as well. And then suddenly you start working for yourself. It's very, very different because you've, you've working in a big organisation. You've got the IT department, you've got the HR department, you've got the finance department, you've got marketing, blah, blah, blah. Working for yourself, you've got me, myself and I department, as I call it. Um, yeah. Or as one of my previous guests called it, you become a COE, a, a chief office, a chief of everything sort of executive. Um, nice. And... What did you find that was the hardest thing for you to, like, what, is there anything that you think to yourself, oh, I wish I knew that when I started working on my own, that I know now? Wow. That, he doesn't know so where to start, I think. No, actually, actually, Matthew, you're absolutely right. That is such a vast question. You know, if I only knew now what I, you know, if, I, if 20 years ago I knew what I knew now, of course. We'll, we'll be, be billionaires. We'll be <laughs> this time next year, Rodney. Um, <laughs> And uh, my, my best man um, at my wedding once said to me, he stood up and was talking about the speech and uh, said, Martin started on his second million. He said, because he's given up on the first one, <laughs> which always always makes people laugh. And it's, it's very true of me. Um, probably the biggest thing for business is actually about the numbers. Um, I've always had half an eye on the numbers, but never really that laser precision that you really need, especially when you're doing it for yourself, because you can't just go need some more money please you know when you're running the budget in the department you've got budgets if you need some more money you go on bended knee to the head of department or somebody else and persuade them or do a bad job and don't persuade them um but effectively it doesn't really affect your outcome that much because you're still going to be in that business because you're still employed you're quite insulated so it's it's that sort of you've got to plan much better and actually be really aware of what's coming up cash flow wise um and yeah it's one of those lessons that we've learned the hard way to be fair even though cash flow is what we talk about all the time we run a small business so you know we have those issues as well definitely so there must be things in your business um, that you run on your own business yourself that are very rewarding and aspects that are very challenging as well is there anything that stands out as being let's do the good one first the rewarding part first uh yes um in the last couple of years we've grown massively in terms of people in the business and I always recruit based upon their values rather than their skills because skills are something that can be taught. Um, if you've got the right attitude and the right values, you know, people will go places. Um, 
the best part of what I do is working with the team I've got. They're absolutely awesome people. Um, they will all go above and beyond. The esprit du corps is second to none. And it makes uh, people say, oh, well, HR, human, you know, human resource issues. People are always the problem, you know, be a great job if it wasn't for the clients and the staff and all that lot. In my case, that's not the case at all. Um, it, the staff here are absolutely fantastic. And they... They're just I can't I can't rate them highly enough. It's just a great team to work with, and I love coming to work. I I don't I don't consider it work. I really don't. Um, my business coach was saying to me the other day, you know, if you were paid, you know, twenty million pounds in the bank and didn't have to come to work, what would you do? And I said I would still come into work because it isn't work for me. It doesn't feel like it at all. Perfect. Well, now let's go to the opposite end then. <laughs> challenging. Um, challenging. We deal with the court service a lot, and the court service are in disarray. Um, COVID has hit the court service hard. It was bad beforehand, and it's got worse and worse. Um, the problem is, is, of course, that we have all that, a lot of our outcomes are based upon court process within the debt recovery and within the litigation firm, and we're being hampered by the, the delays in the court. I mean, I've got a case that we was heard a couple of weeks ago that's been five years getting to court, and it's a straightforward case. Gosh. Um, and the problem is that somebody's life is on hold. You know, it has an impact around that as well. Um, and that's a real challenge because the problem is that people also want to hold us responsible. You know, my case is not progressing. My case is not progressing. No, I'm chasing the court twice a month because that's what we do. But unfortunately, we're sort of, our hands are tied you, and there's no real way of getting around that. So that that is a real challenge. Um, but yeah, most, it's like everything. Yeah, you, you just put up with it. You have to. We do what we can. Um, everybody's in the same boat and, uh, I, you know, I speak to a lot of other lawyers and they're in exactly the same boat and the frustrations are all there for everybody. It's not like anybody's being singled out. Mm. Definitely. And I think that, well, hopefully your business, the recession business, hopefully is not going to be too bad. It doesn't seem as bad as I think everyone was predicting, was it? Not at all. And I think the problem is we can quite often read the newspaper headlines and talk ourselves into this stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I love a good recession and people always laugh when I say that. And the reason I love a good recession is because it gets rid of mm-hmm. those zomb- the zombie businesses who are actually not really doing anything. It just gets rid of that toot. Um, the good businesses survive and, you know, as we all learned a couple of years ago lockdown, you know, people pivot and change and adapt. At the end of the day, you know, consumers still need to buy businesses still need to buy to trade so it's not like the taps turned off yeah it may slow down the you know the pressure may slow down a little on the water but there's still that flow and you've just got to make sure that you are doing the best of the business you know and that's yeah that's very much what we strive to do and um part of the reason we've got the group is so we can actually load balance across the various businesses so that when one side's slower the other side isn't so slow to make us more you know more resilient and then may- maybe even we haven't suffered so badly um, as a recession as everyone was predicting. Because like you said, a recession is there to almost like get rid of all the dead companies and whatever else. But maybe they all died in COVID anyway. <laughs> so there was yeah. no more dead companies to get rid of. And those strong ones are just kept fighting anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there may well be something to be said for that. Obviously, the insolvency process was you know stopped for basically 18 months, nearly two years while COVID happened. So a lot of the winding up that would have happened hasn't happened. So there's been a big increase in that, um, which is actually, I think, more of an impact about that process not being able to happen for two years. So people are now doing that. And I think people are using that as an indicator as a recession, whereas, in fact, it's not. It's an indicator of you couldn't do it for two years and now people are actually trying to take action. Mm. So it's a a sort of a false positive, if you like, rather than it being um, a real indicator. from most of the industries that we speak to, and obviously doing debt recovery back for a vast range of industries, most of them are busy, busy. You know, most of them are not, you know, the, the car market. I was talking to a, uh, you know, a guy the other day, and, you know, Mercedes are, are now only taking orders for five plus cars at a time. And, wow. you know, you're waiting a year for a car now because of supply chain issues. Um, but people are still having to put deposits down. Mm. So the money's still flowing at the moment, certainly. Yeah. And I was out for dinner last night with a friend in um, a Rygate restaurant and literally it was even 
we literally sat we'd booked a table so we were like sat in a little corner somewhere because it was just like rammed packed i think people are obviously still going out there and still it's just a different type of recession isn't it really to maybe what we're what we're i think long established businesses are very used to and those that are older are used to what happened in the 1990s with the interest rates and that sort of stuff those in the finance world are used to the 2008 banking in recession basically that killed off and did quite a lot of ruin there and so we've had two very very strong recessions so when it was predicted that we were going to have another effective strong recession everyone was prepared for the 2008 or the 1990s and obviously I don't, I don't think it's been as bad as those two um no i was i was reading a thing yesterday that said one of the reasons they think it hasn't been so bad is also to do in covid people didn't didn't spend a lot of money mm. so a lot of people sort of you know, rainy day chests funded themselves and now the costs have gone up. They're using those war chests and they're depleting savings, but the depleting savings they had, whereas probably if it had happened not with COVID, people mm. would be straight on the credit anyway. The credit lines would dry up and then it'd be much worse. So yeah. I think COVID, as bad as it was, and, you know, the impact on on the economy is going to be felt for many you know, generations. I think there's some positives to it as well. Like everything, there's always a yin to a yang. Yeah, definitely. So, yourself, um, obviously, you've um, we've said that you offer litigation, commercial property, drafting, as well as compliance and debt recovery. Um, obviously, you know how to do all of those things, and you've got your hand in them all. Is there one that you sort of think to yourself, oh, "I love doing that. That that's my favourite." Insolvency every day of the week. So um, I know very little about commercial property. Okay. Um, now that now the group's getting bigger, I'm now employing experts. Um, to effectively take that and my job is you know in the old days as my coach says you know you you, you hold both both ends of the, the rope and you can hold both ends of the rope in a small business as it gets bigger you just can't do that anymore um so i know very little about commercial property um i know quite a lot about the compliance because i did that when i was in house so i'm actually qualified to do sort of auditing for to iso standards um and i'm actually still training doing a health and safety qualification um, because I, I love continual learning. So uh, it's something I've done throughout my whole career and it's just something I've kept up with. Um, and here in the business, we you know we invest in people and we like to actually make sure our guys are training. You have to, to keep your skills up to date. But yeah, for me, the real love is insolvency, then compliance. And yeah, litigation comes close after that. But as commercial property and drafting, not so much so. <laughs> They can sit, they, those ones can get passed to the other colleagues and you'll be like, oh, no, I'll grab that one. That one's mine. Well, I, 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 as the business gets bigger, the actual ability for me to do what we call, in our world, we call it fee earning, becomes less and less. Um, so I have a sort of select few cases that I keep on at any one time. But because it takes so much more to keep running the business these days, unfortunately, mm. you know, the ability to do that. Um, but you've got to do that. You've got to keep your skills in. You, you know, CPD is absolutely essential for what we do. Because even if you have a couple of years out, it takes a long time to come back. When I was working in-house, I was only in-house for three years. And it took me probably 18 months to get back into the insolvency arena. Um, and then they bought, they bought the rules in as well. They, they changed all the rules. So we all had to start again. But that's <laughs> part of what the fun of the fair is, as they say. And I think that was, that's also what makes us good at our jobs I think as well is that the CPD obviously without the CPD we can't keep up to date with changes with legislation and stuff like that and nobody wants their litigation person or their accountant or their lawyers or anything else to be six months behind anyway you have to be today or else next week as in the budget next week for me it's like so what's going on next week then Chantel (laughs) if only if I was that mind reader but um, absolutely I, I, I always it always astounds me and you know praise the accountants a little bit. I don't very often do that, but you know they get the budget. The budget comes out, and the following the following day, there's sort of hacks and briefings everywhere, and seminars and webinars and all this. And I always find it astonishing how many people sort of absorb this much information so quickly, and actually get it into a, you know, some sort of reconcilable sense of what it's actually going to mean. And it's really important for business to understand what this stuff is. Um, so yeah, a little nod of the nod of the cap there to you, accountants, for oh, uh, thank you for doing such a good job with that. Because uh, I'll take the praise. <laughs> I'll take the praise. So you've touched on there that you said that you are um, a qualified auditor for ISOs. I've got on here nine thousand and one, fourteen thousand and one, twenty-seven thousand and one, forty-five thousand and one. Um, 
So for those listeners who have just gone, you've just talked gobbledygook, Chantal. Well, explain what exactly that is and what do all those numbers mean, actually. And what's, and what's the benefit of getting them? And what is ISO, to start right. with? <laughs> okay, ISO is the International Standards Organisation. Um, the I bit, the international bit, is effectively the important bit because what that does, it sets a harmonised standard across the globe to a set standard. So it's not just, in the old days, you used to have British standards. That was just in Britain. Now, yeah, everybody's now talking about international standards. So 18,001 used to be a British standard for health and safety. We now have 45,001, which is the international standard for health and safety. It took them 10 years of debating to actually get it across the line to actually bring in a health and safety standard to that level. Um, 9,001, as many of the listeners may know, is actually quality. Um, 14,001 is environmental, which is becoming a real big, you know, real big thing as we, uh, you know, we now look at the damage we're doing to the globe. And then 27,001 is another important one, which is to do with data security. So they're basically different topics of standards. Um, and the one good thing is that parts of those standards have actually harmonised so that part four is always about leadership, for example, so that you've then got a common theme for each standard. So when you're actually wanting to become accredited, um, if you've got part four in one of them and you've got the leadership right it's probably right that you can get the leadership ticked off any of those other areas because it's the same thing with a few tweaks. But by and large, it's a sort of harmonised thing. So that's um, that's important. Matthew, you asked the question, you know, what does it bring to the business? What, why should you yeah, do it? Yeah, why do it? I mean, there's a recognition point. Um, it's also about running good business. Um, as, you know, as, as a small business owner ourselves, you know, you can be running really, really busy and actually not running a particularly good business without particular systems in place and processes to really make the business flow well. Um, as you then try to scale that, you can't. You're like a car out of tune. You know, it's like a car only fine with two cylinders. You can't then start to race the car because, unfortunately, you know, you're bunny hopping down the road and it's not really working. With the ISOs, part of it is all to do with, you know, plan, do, check, act, and sort of those round systems to actually sort of feedback systems so it actually makes a much more streamlined business for you, much more efficient, as well as getting that external recognition. Um, and again, lots of businesses need to be accredited for a whole wide range of things. And ISO ticks a lot of those boxes to avoid needing other accreditations. But also um, as a small business, when you're tendering for contracts, especially with like local authorities or maybe, I don't know, maybe NHS or government, and there's, there's all sorts of things where they expect and they demand accreditation before they'll even consider you as a supplier absolutely because you know a quality you know to say you are a quality company offering a quality product if you've got an iso that's saying yes you've been audited you've been externally verified and checked to be into that standard and that external verification um is absolutely key to give people that peace of mind actually it's i suppose it's like that you know the checker trade of the uh the quality world or the check and trade of the health and safety world it's really sort of a standard mark and say, yes, you do what you say you're going to do, and you do it in an efficient way. Okay, and this is probably my last question, but the most important one you're going to hear today, why do, why do they all end in the number one? Why not ISO 14000? Why 14001? Because it took so bloody long to decide it. They had to put a number one on the end to make it look important. That's what yeah, I No, there, there is, I mean, literally there are thousands of standards, and I believe in a... Oh, I believe 14,000 is a preamble to do with the 14,001 standard. So I don't actually know why they always end in one, Matthew. Some of them don't. <laughs> well, there you um, go. So not all of them end okay. in one. So not, not all of them do. But well, yeah, all the important ones. All the important ones end in one. Exactly that. Because it's the first one, number one. That's it. So if you, had to, if you were a business and you thought to yourself, oh, actually, that sounds quite interesting. I, that's something I want to consider, um, getting an ISO standard. How would you go about actually doing that? So as a business, uh, we do this a lot for businesses, and that's a question that we face quite a lot. Um, the first thing that we come in, we come in and do one of our consultants is actually do a, a gap analysis because we can actually measure where you are on the roadmap to pay, compared to where you need to be. And then um, with some of the systems we use, we can actually put a program in place to actually show what needs to be done in the time frame that you give us to actually get to that. So that gap analysis is really key, first of all, because there may well be businesses who are doing things 
that they don't even realise they're doing and they've got processes in place that are absolutely perfect uh, for what they need. So it's a case of, you know, accessing the good bits and then assisting them with the bits they don't have. And is there, if you were like a small business, is there one ISO that, like, say you thought, okay, this is something I am going to do, I want to go and do, I want to, like, get for my business or my accreditation on there. Is there one that you should try and get more than, because 90,001, I think, is the one that I see the most. Yeah. Um, Yeah, 9,001 is the quality. Right. So I think think that sort of transverses most industries, most sectors, to say that you're offering a quality product or service. Um, you know, 14,001 environmental. Well, if you're, you know, if you're a law firm, having an environmental standard might be important to you, but it probably won't be that important. If you are, you know, a forestry timber product, that probably is a much more important one for you than that. So it is horses for courses. And again, you know, if you work at an accountant's firm, having a health and safety ISO is probably not that important to you because... I can't see many people are going to say, oh, I'm really pleased with a health and safety qualification. That's why I'm going to choose them as an accountant. You know, there's not that sort of joined up thinking, whereas 27,001 for data security and whatever. But, oh, hang on. Mm. Actually, I think that is actually quite an important one when these people are doing my data in the cloud and it is sensitive data. So it is horses for courses, probably 9,001 being that quality because whatever people do, they want to offer a quality product and service. And so say like, I don't know, Someone thinks, right, okay, I want that ISO 9001, let's say, because it's the one we see most often. And they come to you and they go, right, Martin, I want your assistance in enabling me to get that ISO 9001. Um, How long is the process then? And was it? (laughs) I'm going to give a lawyer's answer there, Chantelle. Pace of string. Yeah, pace pace of string. Half a distance from the middle to the end is apparently what people keep telling me with that one. Um, Generally, if a business has got nothing whatsoever, mm-hmm. and it does depend on the sector and what they're doing, but easily, easily within sort of six to nine months, we can get them to that standard. Um, and that's, you know, with them doing quite a lot of the work to actually put processes and systems in place and actually then using those processes and systems. Um, a lot of people think that with ISOs, you have to follow a prescribed way of doing something. You don't. Your the systems you do are accredited to the standard, not the other way around. It isn't giving you a prescribed way of doing something. Um, so that's a sort of a. I think some people think that we're going to give them a right. You now need to manufacture this like this. Mm. Well, that's not how it works. You manufacture that like that, and we will now make the quality process sit around that process. Um, so it fits, you know, hand in glove rather than the other way around. Um, but yeah, six to nine months um, from absolutely nothing. I mean, we, we would normally say that you would get certification within the year because obviously you then have to book in with an external accreditation company to actually do the final accreditation. But we pair everybody up to that point so that we've done that and we've gone in and pretended to be the final auditor. So we've actually done an audit for them, a sort of a mock exam, if you like. And we know the areas where there's any issues and we iron those out before they come in so that when the main auditor comes in, it's falling off a log. Yeah, this is everything in place. Very easy. And again, as we know, if we make things easy, then there's no minors, no majors, and uh, everybody passes. So uh, it's all in the homework. Brilliant. Champ Consultants is an award-winning independent firm of highly experienced, qualified accountants and tax advisors based in Caterham, providing a fully comprehensive range of accountancy and tax services. If you would like simple but creative answers to your tax problems, call Champ Consultants, your business partner, on 01883 349 300. And welcome back to your business hour with myself, Chantal. And me, Matthew. And we're chatting to Martin. So, Martin, we've talked a bit before um, we broke up about what all the different bits you do and ISO and all that sort of stuff. Now I'm going to pick on a couple of other bits you do. So right now I find debt recovery is one of those topics that is very important for businesses and nobody really likes to have to do it. Because you feel really guilty um, chasing people for money. You feel really, oh, everyone thinks that, oh, yeah, they can pay. But in a small business, people who don't pay you, to me, they're just using you as an interest-free overdraft facility. I have a suspicion the, the champs' it. clients better watch out. I think Chantel's going to make me do credit control today. 
<laughs> but yeah, small businesses, some people think, oh yeah, they're just using me as an interest-free overdraft facility. Oh, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. They don't, they don't Well, as a small business, overdraft facilities are not there for everybody to use. And it can put a small business out of business if they don't have that cash flow. So this is where I'm going to start picking your brain and you're going to start sharing some tips with us. So I went, So, are there any tips that we can do as a small business to help us not to have to use your services of debt recovery? It sounds awful, doesn't it? No. So what can you advise talk, no. me not to use you for? <laughs> Pre- prevention is always better than cure. Um, it's one of those things whereby with debt recovery, you know, it's a very English thing. We don't like talking about money. You know, it's a very big, oh, my God, we can't talk about money. It's, it's, you know, we'd rather talk about just about anything else apart from money. Um, and, you know, cash is absolutely key. If you haven't got cash, you know, you're sunk. It doesn't matter the assets you've got. Um, from an insolvency side, technically, there's two measures to insolvency. So there's either the balance sheet test, where the liabilities outweigh the assets, or there's a cash flow test. You can't pay your debts as and when they fall due. And that's one of the two ways that they're actually the courts measure insolvency. And it's normally the cash flow test that most businesses fail because, I mean, if you look at Woolworths and a lot of these others, they've got absolutely vast balance sheets that are absolutely millions of pounds clear on the balance sheet test, but on the cash flow, they couldn't pay the bill for the pick and mix at the end of the month. And unfortunately, that was the end of Woolies. Hmm. Um, that, that's the world we live in. I mean, for me, one of the things that I, it still ceases to astound me is people do the work and then wait to invoice. It, it is, it's incredible. When you've done the work at that point, invoice. Don't wait a day or two, get it done, get it bashed out, get it ready before you've even finished. So the whole purpose of you being in business is to get that money in to be paid to make a profit. You can then follow it up in sort of 24 to 48 hours confirming that invoice has been received and to make sure there's no issues. Now, that can cut a whole load of problems out later on because people then can't run down that avenue of, oh, yeah, yeah I didn't receive it, I didn't have that. Matthew, you're not going to like this, but I always say produce a weekly creditor sheet and then task somebody to get on with actually going through that to highlight who owes money. Um, literally from then, get on the phone, email, call them. And I was taught a long time ago in debt recovery that we always get the debtor to do something. So if you're in a, in a conversation with any of my guys here, we will always, if you're coming to debtor and you, oh, we, we need some time to pay, I will always make the debtor do something, Okay. This is their problem. This is not your problem. It is your problem as well now, but they need to take an active process in that and you need to make them do something. So what do you mean by make Uh, them do something? What would that be, example? Well, even if it's, you know, we can't afford to pay till a week on Friday. Okay, can I have that in writing? It doesn't matter what it is, Chantel. It's about the process of actually getting them to engage with you and doing something. Um, Because, again, they feel more locked into that process. If they could just fob you off with, oh, it's on a payment round the week on Thursday, Thanks very much. Well, they can and forget that. They put the phone down. You, you, you've gone. That's it. Problem gone. You're off my desk. If they've got to do something and they're putting their name to it, it's got a bit more traction. Um, as you come up to payment date, so if you offer long credit terms, which you shouldn't be doing, you know, seven days, 14 days, you know, 28 days, tops really, a couple of days before that's due, find out and say, well, are we on the payment run? Is there any issues? You know, literally just be proactive. Um, don't be embarrassed. And if you can strike up a good relationship with the people there, you can quite often get to the top of the queue. I know um, I know quite a few credit controllers who've said people have phoned up, been discourteous and shouted and been quite rude. Gone down and they've, to the they've literally put them at the bottom of the queue where if somebody's phoned up... I mean, I, I know one guy who used to actually send relevant account departments boxes of chocolates at Easter and Christmas, and their bills would always go to the top of the queue. Um might come under anti-bribery policy these days. But, you know, <laughs> it is, it's, it's an appreciation where, policy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Who, who says we have to fight fair? Um, so that's that. Um, and again, if you are in a situation where you're thinking, I've got a bit of a problem here, you need to speak to your suppliers and agree payment terms with them to actually buy you some more credit on the other side. So if you've got a particular issue where somebody isn't paying you, you're thinking, oh, my God, this is going to cause me problems, don't put your head in the sand. Be proactive. Um, if you think it's going to be a bigger problem, come and talk to somebody like myself, insolvency lawyer, insolvency practitioner early. Um, in the profession, we always say, if, if you come and see us early, we can help. It isn't all doom and gloom. We're not just there to euthanise and put the businesses out of out of being. 
Um, there's a lot of that turnaround and recovery stuff. If we get enough time, we can do, but we need time. And if it's, you know, it's three weeks past that being due, this is overdue, and, you know, somebody's going to fall close tomorrow, well, our hands are tied. So being proactive and actually doing that. Um, be persistent. That's the other one that always works a treat. You know, he who shouts loudest gets most. And if you're on the phone every day, if you're not getting what you want, and basically keep battering on that door, you're more likely to get paid. And finally, come and speak to an expert. You know, at the end of the day, if you've exhausted that and you've got to the point where this isn't happening, don't let it just run. Don't put your head in the sand. Come and take expert advice, not the guy down the pub, because to be fair, so many things I hear of my mate down the pub told me this. Well, your mate down the pub doesn't carry professional indemnity insurance, which is lucky because they'll be being called into practice at this very moment. Um, but take that expert advice from somebody who actually knows what they're doing and be prepared to take action. That's the final thing for me. It's um, it's amazing how people come along and say, right, well, okay, we need to do this. Right, okay, we're going to need to invoke a procedure. Oh, I'm not sure about that. Well, if they're not paying you, they're not a good customer. Um, you know, at the end of the day, people need to get a change of mindset. And I, I go into firms quite a lot and try and change their mindsets around this. Good customers are one who appreciate the service you do and pay you on time. If you're being treated like a bank and being asked to line, offer lines of credit, then that's fine. I can come along and yeah, if you want to offer me a line of credit, I'll very happily take some of your money and look after it for you for a couple of weeks if it's free money. Um, that's not the way to run a business. So uh, if you need to take action, then you need to be decisive. And so say like you've done all those bits, like you've said, you've given us some great tips there. Thank you. Um, and I'm sure lots of our listeners will start implementing those if they're not already. And then you've done all of those bits and now you're like, oh, God, it's three months down the line and this person still hasn't paid. And we go, right, OK, then we're going to go and see Martin now. Go, Martin, look, I've got this debt. This person hasn't paid. I've listened to all your tips. I've done everything you've told me to do. And they still haven't paid. Um, from a point of like, shall we say, we don't want to be in that position. But if we are in that position, we want to have all the documentary evidence necessary to be in that position, shall we say. Um, what yep. sort of documentation or paperwork would we need to prove that that money was owed? Because at the end of the day, that person could turn around and go, oh, I don't owe them that sort of money. I don't owe them that money. And then we're stuck. We, we see it a lot. Um, evidence is always key. You know, if we are going into a court process, the court rely on evidence to actually... And that is generally in the form of documentation. Um, the reason we have a, a contract drafting service and we draft a lot of terms and conditions is to make sure that people are proactively protecting themselves and where they're in the position where they have to take action, we're able to write in there the ability to get recovered their legal costs, for example. Because on small claims tracks matters under £15,000, normally the rule is that each party bears their own costs. Well, if you write in the T's and C's and have them incorporated into the contract that, nope, if you default, you're paying all my costs. All of a sudden, it becomes much more palatable to come along to a debt recovery firm because you know that actually, okay, you may be paying out the money in the first instance, but we're now adding that onto the debt and we're now chasing that as well for you. So again, that prevention thing. So you maybe don't want to use this for debt recovery, Chantel, if you don't have to, but if you come and talk to us about terms and conditions, you can actually put yourself in a better position as well. Um, with that is understanding actually how contracts work, understanding legal entities. This is a big bugbear of mine that people don't understand what a limited company is, don't understand what that means, don't understand what sole trader or partnerships are, don't identify who they're actually contracting with legally. Um, I had a situation literally the other day where a company gave me a statutory demand that they'd served on this company. They wanted me to proceed with actually going up to actually wind the company up. Um, I said, why haven't the company come back to you? Don't know. I said, look, let me send a letter before we do anything else. Save you quite a lot of money in court fees and £2,600 uh, deposit for the official receiver. Wrote to the company and they came back and said, you've gone after the wrong company. <laughs> and literally, they'd gone after the wrong legal entity. And we could have very easily wasted a good couple of thousand pounds. Actually, on the instructions we were given, because that's the company they asked us to go after, because it wasn't the company that you could track it with. Um, so that's, that's a real big one for me, Chantel, because it's just so, so important to really understand that. And if you don't understand that, come and speak to us because we can give you peer advice. I know you guys, the accountants, understand this stuff and you can advise as well. Um, but it very much is once you understand who you can track him with, get the contract in place and then obviously make sure you keep all the invoices and the delivery notes 
if you're delivering product um, and get people to agree it. You know, as I said before, if you speak to them after you sent the invoice 24 hours afterwards, quick, quick file note, you could do it in zero. If you've got zero, you could add a note to the system. Spoke to X, Y, Z. Yes, they've got the invoice. There's no issue with it. That's all good evidence. And then when you um, are contracted with someone, they're not paying you and you hear about them doing a flit in the night, they've moved and they've not told you their new address. Um, I'm guessing professionals like yourselves, you have systems and the ability to trace these people and to find out where they've moved on to. Oh, the dark arts, Matthew. The dark oh, arts. The dark, the dark arts. arts. Oh, okay. That's I like what that. it's called. <laughs> they become um, yeah, night I mean, riders of the night. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when they're not limited companies and so there's nothing on the public record. Yep. Um, the problem is these days is that we leave what they call electronic fingerprints everywhere. So you go and open up a credit account, you do this, you do that, your electoral role. So as individuals, um, you can still be traced. And we use professional tracing agents, all who comply with the Data Protection Act. I'm pleased to say. Um, I would hope if, so. If you, go back, if you go back to pre-news of the world, um, it very much was much more of a, um, a dark and mysterious process. And there's some very unlawful things that used to go on. You had to be very, very careful as a law firm who you instruct in as an agent to make sure they're reputable because there was all sorts of meanies and nasties going on in the background doing all sorts of things. But no, professional tracing agents are expert in what they do. And I mean, we have literally, we trace people all across the globe, not just in the UK. Hmm. Uh, we've traced people to the Caribbean, to the Far East. Um, it's quite a lot of fun, that Matthew, I have yeah. to say. <laughs> well, you go holidays a couple well, of you've times. Well, <laughs> you've mentioned professional a couple of times, so I'm guessing you don't carry a baseball bat in the boot of your car. Or like, like no, some of the... no, no, it's uh, demanding money with menaces is quite a serious offence these yeah. days. Um, the 19th I mean, that's, that's, way of... That's, the... that's what people have perceived, but don't they, the really? that's the perception, isn't it? Debt collectors, they they're big guys with muscles, and, you know, yeah. and it, it's not the case at all in the professional world, is it? It's... Not at all. I mean, you've seen the programme. I mean, a, a couple of our agents are on the telly, you know, can't pay, we take it away. Uh, my friend James King is on there quite regularly. Um, and James, he's not a small guy. Um, but again, they're very professional in what they do and they're, they're expert negotiators. That's what they really are. They have to be of a certain size to actually have carry out some message. But they're court officers. You know, at the end of the day, the, the old days of going to go around and sort them out with a six-foot scaffold pole well, um they're long gog and so yeah so and the industry is so much better for it to be fair um it is much more professional and again we're professional legal collections you know we we do everything lawfully um and certainly would never think of doing anything like that matthew i'm sure as you would as, sure as tempted as it may be for some clients to wish that we would um, i'm sure because it is frustrating when people owe you money yeah. there's very few things in this world that frustrate people more mm, definitely so Thank you. So that's lots of good tips there. And I think the thing that you did mention there that I just want to enhance on um, is that you did say, like, obviously, if you're finding your own cash flow a bit of an issue, um, insolvency is a bit of a scary word sometimes, but sometimes it, it's, it's not the be all and end all and doesn't always happen as long as you get in early. Isn't that right? That's absolutely key. If the one message you can get from today is... If you are having problems, seek advice early. Speak to your accountant, speak to myself, speak to an insolvency practitioner, you know, somebody who actually understands insolvency and can actually come up with some strategies for the business. There's a lot of protection that's in law, monitoriums and those sort of things, and these very strange words that they now use. Um, but effectively, it can give you time. Breathing space is another one if you're an individual debtor. Um, that's a relatively new scheme that people can actually get some time to actually get their affairs together. Um, ostriches you know, never prosper in this world. Um, putting your head in the sand is not good news. Um, and there's been so many cases, and it, it's the most frustrating thing as as an insolvency professional because most of us say we're insolvent and restructuring because a lot of it is about actually we can take bits of the business, sort it out, possibly sell bits, get, get rid of bits that are not working so well, and again, make a better business going forward if you've got time and you've got some, you know, some breathing space. So, uh, yeah, prevention is better when we've got time. You know, if, if it's just last last chance saloon, you know, you've got a winding up petition on Tuesday morning, you're phoning me on the Friday night, the chances are that there's very little we can do. Whereas if you think you're going to be presented with a winding up petition because you know they're not very happy and that's going to be a couple of months away, we can get things done and we can help. And we are here to help. We are a helping profession. 
And I think that's that's very true because a lot of people think and get scared and go, oh, my God, if I've got to go and speak to a liquidator, I've got to go and speak to a debt collector, it's really bad. But it's it's not. It just means that you haven't got the skills necessary or the professionalism necessary to do what's needed. And you're just going to an expert in that field, really. No different, is it? Absolutely not. You know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, if you if you're in the, in, the, in the street having a heart attack and uh, there's two people come along, one, one of them says, oh, I'm a cardiac surgeon. The other one says, I'm a GP. Who are you going to want to look at you? Well, I'll take the cardiac surgeon, thanks. Yeah. You know, definitely thanks, not the mate down know, the pub. <laughs> yeah, and certainly not, you know, Mr. Mate, who's got a, uh, you know, a Blue Peter badge and um, first aid St. John's certificate. You know, it's not, not one of those. Yeah. Um, people, you know, people are embarrassed. And, you know, I always say that, you know, we're, we're never here to judge. Um, here by the grace of God, goals. we all run small businesses. We've all, you know, had situations where it's been tough for all of us, you know, we're not sitting here high and mighty and judging people and we can help um, and we want to help. And that's the thing. It's frustrating for us when we can't help because it's too late. Um, if we can, you know, we will help. And, you know, that expert advice. Yeah, it, it really can make a difference. So finally, we've got about three minutes left. So we haven't really got very long left here now. I know that in your spare time, you're a volunteer and trustee of the Kent Search and Rescue as a search manager. Um, do you have to have ever go out searching? Uh, yes, we go out searching a lot. Do you um, do it yourself as well? We do. So you have to be what they call a search technician, which is um, effectively a ground soldier sort of out in teams in the woods, or in urban areas. Uh, we search anywhere in Kent. Um, we have up to 100 volunteers. We generally search in teams of four. And then from that, we then have different teams, bikes, dogs, drones. I'm also a drone pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, with canoes, kayaks, rafts. So a whole range of different skills as well. And then as search manager, I have sort of overall responsibility strategically for sort of that search, implementing strategies of where people have gone missing in the past, using those stats to actually come up with a plan and then actually implement that plan to actually find the missing person. That's been really out. interesting. How did you get into that? Somebody I knew from networking did it, and they came and gave a presentation at a charity, that, uh, a club that I'm involved in, and I sat there and said, oh, quite a fancy bit of that. And that was eight years ago, and uh, I'm just over 350 searches later. Wow. I'm actually, I'm actually search manager this week, so the phone could potentially go off at any time between now and 8 o'clock Sunday night. So... Um, yeah, it's, and we've been out this week. We had a call earlier in this week. We did um, a call to Tunbridge Wells on Friday night last uh, Saturday, yeah, Friday night last week for an 88-year-old dementia. And we also um, assisted in the search and recovery of a 29-year-old suicidal male on Friday and Saturday, which is more unfortunate, a very sad outcome, that one. So we have some good outcomes. The 88-year-old who actually put himself into to bed in the travel lodge. Um, he was safe, safe and well in the warm, which we were worried about because it's very cold. And then, yeah. unfortunately, we do get there the yin to the yang, but it's very, very rewarding giving back something back and wanting to help. Very rewarding. So you don't associate with search and rescue with somewhere like Kent. It's not like the, you know, the, uh, up in the Scotland Highlands or anything or in mountainous areas, but it, the, we have a very recent public case where a lady fell into a river and I guess that's more likely to be something that would happen in, in the Kent area or you, know, yeah. you mentioned I mean, dementia Nick, patients and... Yeah, Nick, Nick of the Bully is the one you're, you're referring to up at Blackpool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, we, we actually work with, you know, some of the people there. We know some of the teams who are involved. In England and Wales, there's um, a thing called Lowland Rescue. And there are actually 36 different counties who have teams who come together under the Lowland Rescue banner. So there is mountain rescue, but we, Lowland Rescue, say we're from hill to high water, is our sort of operational area, if you like. Um, we do about 80 call-outs a year. I say there's Surrey, Sar, there's Essex Sar, um, East Sussex or Sussex Sar, and London Sar. So there's quite a few in the uh, the southeast. Hants Sar, um, it's all around the southeast corner. Um, and if there's a big job, we get called to each other. Um, we had a six yard a couple of years ago who was in the water. Um, so saying body in water, and in fact the dive guy who went up, who didn't do a particularly fantastic PR job, Peter. Um, he, he's only got in a bit of trouble with the media. He was actually on the job. With um, for Lucas down at Sandwich, so we even work with him as well. Mm. So uh, a very interesting case, Nicola Bully, and uh, you know, a very tragic outcome. Mm. Yeah, but as a, as a as volunteering project goes, that that's 
pretty up there with a amazing yeah, in terms of the human aspect but also how interesting that must be it is um and to be fair i've very much built my sort of business around enabling me to be free and able to go and do that and my amazing team i was talking about earlier you know sort of enable me to just dive out of the office pete who runs the compliance business with me he's also a volunteer research and rescue so um it can be both of us diving off at some point if it you know on, on those weeks um but it gives a hell of a lot back um and yeah we get a lot of we get a lot out of it it's very very rewarding i, I say you know you join Kent search and rescue to find other people and you end up finding yourself <laughs> very because good. You, you learn you, you learn a lot about yourself when you do it fantastic brilliant right so we have actually come to the end uh, i can't believe that's gone so fast um Thank you very much, Martin. Um, anything that pleasure. you might have missed there, then you can listen again um, to our podcast. And that is Your Business Hour. And you can get Your Business Hour podcast on any of your podcast channels. That's it from Matthew and myself this week. And we will see you again see you next, next week. week. Thank you and for have listening. a good weekend. Champ Consultants is an award-winning independent firm of highly experienced, qualified accountants and tax advisors based in Caterham, providing a fully comprehensive range of accountancy and tax services. If you would like simple but creative answers to your tax problems, call Champ Consultants, your business partner, on 01883 349 300. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.